Hey everyone, before we get into today's episode, I want to start with a joke. It's one of my all-time favorite jokes by the legendary Mitch Hedberg. So let's let Mitch tell it himself. I'm against picketing, but I don't know how to show it. I think about this joke a lot. Well, actually, I usually misremember it as, I'm against protesting, but I don't know how to show it, which feels like one of those weird mandala effects where our brains simplify and streamline things when they store it in the memory. Anyways, as a wizard, I'm always trying to look at the larger context. The ideologies that are so pervasive in our society, we mistake them for common sense. Or even worse, as our own hopes and dreams. When I look around at the world today, I see a culture that is telling us that the best thing we can do with our lives is create. Paint pictures, make podcasts, write books, express yourself. What could be better than diving deep into your own creative truth, right? But when I look closer, this creativity isn't quite what it seems. The millennial dream isn't really about creating. It's about scaling. We don't celebrate the artist no one has ever heard of, the happy scribblers writing poetry in private, the amateur cooks inventing new recipes just to feed their friends and families. No, what we really want is to scale. We want to take those poems, post them on Twitter, and grow a huge following. We want to take those paintings, post them on Instagram, and become financially successful independent artists who make a living selling art on Etsy and never have to work a 9-to-5 again. It's not enough to make up a recipe, cook it, and enjoy eating it. No, to really matter in the modern world, we need to launch our fitfabchef.com gluten-free paleo recipe blog, where every recipe is preceded by a 2,500-word essay on what inspired us to make cauliflower crust pizza today. And I've got to tell you, I've got a lot of problems with this ideology. I think it tricks us into spending our free time what used to be our off-work hours, slaving away at a side hustle. We can't just enjoy a hobby or passion as it is. We have to work hard to monetize it, hone our personal brand, and develop a devoted following so we can influence them to buy products they don't need via sponsored content. There's a Latin phrase I find very useful when considering why something is the way it is. Qui bono. It means who benefits. And when you look at the contemporary landscape, the beneficiaries of this new creative side hustle influencer economy aren't the creatives. Because I think even the lucky few at the top of the pyramid earning big bucks are spending way more time mastering Instagram's analytics and honing branded content strategy than they are playfully, joyously pursuing their passion. No, I think the real beneficiaries are the social platforms themselves. The YouTubes, the Twitters, the Squarespaces, the Fivers, the Twitches, and on and on. For those platforms, our deeply personal creations are just grist for the content mill, another way to attract eyeballs in the attention economy. And the more they convince us, we're doing what we love, or this will become profitable if I just work more nights and weekends, the less they have to compensate us for our efforts. And the more miserable we become looking at the creators higher up the hierarchy, the ones with bigger follower accounts and more impressive output. Okay, so that's all pretty fucked. But don't worry, I've got some positive ideas about how wizardry can help us find a better path forward. But before I get to that, I need to acknowledge the conundrum I've wrestled with for the last six years. How do I protest against protesting? How do I broadcast this warning that I feel is so necessary? How do I share the magic that I believe is so vital without falling into the same trap of soulless self-promotion that I'm trying to speak out about? How do I overcome the hypocrisy of growing a podcast and wizard brand so I can warn the world about the insidious forces convincing us we all need to start a podcast and grow a brand? The unsatisfactory answer is, I don't know. It's a paradox. But thankfully, wizards are nothing if not creatures of paradox. So my solution is this podcast episode. While you already know that this podcast is a ritual, 
this episode is really, really a ritual. Because this episode is my attempt to sacrifice my self-doubt on the altar of your understanding. The confession I need to make to absolve myself of the sin of self-promotion. So we'll get into the ritual in a moment, wherein I'll be invoking you, the amazing human people that make this worthwhile, banishing the parasitic techno-capitalist creatures that feed on our labors of love, and summoning the wonderful power of wizardry itself as a shining light to lead us through the valley of darkness towards the slightly better future I know we can carve out for ourselves. But before we get to that, I should explain why this is happening now. You see, today is April 1st, April Fool's Day, a very important holiday for wizards the world over. It's also the day I officially announced myself to the world as a wizard way back in 2015. After six years of wrestling with this conundrum and figuring out what it means to be a wizard, I'm ready to turn the page and start a new chapter, a slightly better chapter. I can't keep sabotaging my own success because I'm afraid of selling out. I need to thread the needle and be honest with you about my fears, my dreams, and the magic we can create together. So it's time to usher in a slightly better era of this podcast as a ritual. One that isn't just about me as a wizard, but about all of you as friends of the wizard, as part of a community connecting person to person and fighting back against the manipulation and dehumanization and alienation that occurs at scale. So as of today, we're refreshing the This Podcast is a Ritual Patreon. While there's still aspects of the model I don't love, it's the one that feels truest to what I'm trying to create. As a wizard, I promise you here and now that I will never, ever, ever advertise to you. I won't even make exceptions for products that I really use, because that's a very easy thing to lie about. As a wizard, my authenticity and my integrity are the core of my magic, and your trust means everything to me. I want to help you influence your reality in a slightly better direction, but I never want to influence you to buy a product because someone gave me money to do so. So that's why we're doing Patreon. I feel much more comfortable knowing that I can make my living as a wizard because people out there in the world, people like you, believe in what I'm doing enough to say, fuck it, man, I'll give that wizard $4.20 each month. And for everyone who's donated to the Patreon already, wow, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. But if I'm going to make a habit of asking for money and growing this ritual, I want to make damn sure it's worth your while. So we're making the whole Patreon slightly better with new tiers, new benefits, monthly bonus episodes, wizard guide ebooks on magical topics, and so much more exciting stuff to come. And that means I'm going to be sucking it up and doing a better job of promoting the Patreon moving forward, while also working to make this podcast as a ritual slightly better for everyone, Patreon subscriber or not, with exciting new guests and a higher level of production. Because I believe, truly and sincerely, that the world right now needs wizards more than ever. And as a wizard, I know that I need friends and community, not fans and followers. And that's the thing I'm most excited about, creating this community. Starting this month, we're going to kick off a virtual Friends of the Wizard social for Patreon subscribers so we can all come together each month and get to know each other. And when we pass $420, we'll unlock a seasonal magic ceremony, a real live virtual ritual we can all perform together to make our collective magic stronger. And when we get to 666, that'll open up a This Podcast is a Ritual Discord so we can create new avenues of connection and creation between all of us. And after that, well, that's a secret for the time being, but I've got a few tricks up my sleeve. And if there's one thing we wizards are known for, it's having very spacious sleeves. Now, before we dive into the ritual, I'm going to get slightly better at the self-promotion shuffle and say, if you haven't subscribed to the Patreon, visit patreon.com slash this podcast is a ritual and give what thou wilt, because it'll be awesome to see this magic work and unlock the 420 seasonal ceremony 
right away. And if you've enjoyed the podcast so far, go to iTunes and like and subscribe and give us a good review. I know it's annoying, but it won't take too much of your time and it tricks the algorithms into promoting the podcast so we can connect with all the future listeners out there. The ones who are tired of listening to NPR and Joe Rogan and those brothers who play D&D, just wishing there was some way that they could connect with a wizard and enter a slightly better reality. So don't do it for me. Do it for them. Okay. Phew. That was a lot. I did it. I'm against protesting. But hey, I protested. And I embraced the paradox. And now it's time for me to pull back the curtain on the way I think the world really runs and the crisis of authenticity confronting our generation. So hang on to your headphones and believe me when I tell you, this is no ordinary podcast episode. This episode is a slightly better podcast episode. In 420 years, reality as we know it will cease to exist. In its place, we will find a new dimension, unlike anything that's come before, and totally fucking better. Take a deep breath and open your mouth to let your magic out. This is no ordinary podcast. This ritual is a ritual. It's a ritual. ritual. It's a ritual. It's a ritual. It's a ritual. It's a Thou dost receive the human spirit in every rising breath. Eat of the fruit of the garden, wheat grown by the sweat of thy grandfather's brow, bread baked in the oven of thy grandmother's love. Thou art a person, mind and body given meaning through the long rite of communion we call culture. Thee I invoke noble person rise now and hear my words person noun a human being regarded as an individual a person is an individual unit of being while we could say a human being that feels well impersonal A person is an individual unit, not just any human being, but one imbued with a blend of qualities, attributes, attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors that add up to what we call a personality. And a person also has roles and responsibilities, which when combined with their personalities, makes them not only unique individuals, but members of larger groups, families and friendships, and ultimately society and civilization. We'll talk about those bigger groups in a bit, but for now, I want to focus on the more intimate ones, the relationships we have with friends and family and social scenes, the groups where we're treated as persons, the places where, just like Cheers, everybody knows your name. Have you ever been out and about running errands when you bump into a friend and it totally makes your day? There you are, doing some annoying chore, lost in a sea of anonymous humans, when suddenly... You hear someone call your name. Someone knows who you are. And when you stop to talk with your friend, it makes you feel good because it affirms who you are as a person. And it doesn't even have to be a good friend. Sometimes just seeing an acquaintance is all it takes. A familiar face. Like that barista at your corner coffee shop you're on a first name basis with. And that's where we get the benefits of small talk. Not the banal, good weather today, huh? small talk you do with strangers, but the casual, affirming conversations you partake in with the people you know. Hey Devin, how's it going? How's the podcast? Are you going to that party this weekend? What's your fiancé up to today? Tell her I said hi. This little bit of banter 
reinforces your identity, reminds you of the roles you play in your social group, the connections you have, the things you do. It affirms who you are. When we move out of the tight-knit social networks of small towns, which yes, also have their disadvantages, and into the anonymity of a big city, we lose these affirmations. And then we have to compensate by broadcasting who we are, telling the world what kind of person we are so it doesn't forget. Yelling over loud music to tell strangers, I work for a company, what do you do? Or reminding our coworkers, I'm a musician, I'm working on a new album, I have a show next week. This constant self-promotion is exhausting. And the absence of those gentle, casual affirmations is even worse. I think a lot of us felt that over the last year. Suddenly denied our personhood-affirming conversations with that friendly barista, the casual drinks out with friends, even the lame, how was your weekend, chit-chat with colleagues. These little moments do a much better job of reminding us who we are than the posts we make on social media, the 140-character affirmations and reflective selfies we share with the world to say, Hi, just in case you forgot, um, this is who I am, and this is what I look like. And don't worry, I know you'll forget this soon, so I'll be posting another reminder again tomorrow with a slightly different picture of my face. And that's the other thing I think we learned last year. As persons, we like to do things in person. It feels good when we get to experience that subconscious symphony of microfacial expressions. Tones of voice, hugs, human contact. It's what we evolved to crave as social animals. While a tube of Soylent might contain the nutrients we need to stay alive, it doesn't provide the same rich experience of a home-cooked meal shared with family and friends, which is what we need to truly live. In more traditional societies, our lives were based in networks of relationships that helped us meet these needs. Again, like small towns, there's gossip and pressure to conform and other aspects we modern individuals would find uncomfortable about collective living. But at least we didn't have to do it all ourselves. Our families, friends, neighbors, and acquaintances helped define our roles and affirm our identities. And those are benefits we're sorely missing now that we've taken individualism to the extreme. Just as certain segments of the populace see wearing a mask as an affront to their autonomy, their God-given right to do whatever they want, fuck everybody else. We've become semi-anonymous atoms accountable to no one. Our relationships are weak, our identities endangered. To feel seen, to be understood, we have to express ourselves by mining our truest creative core and turning it into a legible, packageable brand we can promote on social media, screaming our name into the void until we're hoarse and exhausted. But we'll return to that trend in a moment. For now, let's stay focused on what it means to be a person. Building off the evolutionary design of our social primate ancestors, Homo sapiens came together to form bands, clans, kinship networks, and small chiefdoms. These eventually grew into societies and civilizations, all of which were imbued with a powerful new process, cultural evolution. While old cultures weren't perfect, and I'm not trying to glorify a romanticized vision of the past, our ancestors were the beneficiaries of this cultural evolution. They lived in systems that developed over time to fit their genetic predispositions and structure society in ways where they could thrive as persons. Maybe it wasn't as ideal as being a small band of hunter-gatherers, but people in pre-modern societies, even as they grew into cities and states, still knew their neighbors, worked cooperatively, and ate according to recipes and traditions passed down through unbroken lines of grandma's secret recipe. And even now, when we investigate the diverse human cultures eating according to the guidelines set out by time-tested traditional cuisines, we find astonishing wisdom for extracting the proper nutrients from our environment, avoiding excess, and maintaining optimum human health. Along with cuisine, our cultures evolved mythologies to explain the world to us. Sacred stories, rites of passage, and rituals 
gave our lives meaning and purpose that made sense to our person-level view of the world. They helped us navigate the difficulties of life, the woes of disease and disaster that were beyond our control. But the funny thing about disease and disaster is that even though they were the scourge of the pre-modern world, neither ever consciously manipulated us. I mean, yeah, sure, diseases developed in human communities and learned how to exploit our bodies to spread and reproduce, but they never sought to control us, trick us, or tug at our heartstrings until we bought something. When you walk through a forest, even though there might be big animals that present a danger to your well-being, be they lions, tigers, or bears, oh my, none of those animals evolved to specifically target the human species, or you as an individual. A tiger hasn't observed hundreds of thousands of humans and pinpointed their specific psychological weaknesses. But in the urban forest, in the digital jungle, that's no longer the case. There are things, entities, that have learned exactly what makes us tick, how to trick our biological systems into guiding us towards what's best for them, in much the same way as our ancestors learned to guide crops into growing where and how we desired. So before we move on, it's important for me to reiterate my point. I'm a wizard, but first and foremost, I am a person. You are a person. We evolved through genetics and culture to thrive in a person-centric environment, in small communities that affirmed our identities, fed us according to tradition, and wrapped us in mythologies that gave our lives meaning, purpose, and magic. And these are the things that we lose when we scale up, when we surpass Dunbar's number, the 150 distinct social relations we can truly maintain, and enter into a world of acquaintances whose names we can't quite remember, strangers whose faces we've never seen before, and bizarre new entities that, while composed of persons, are most certainly not a person. Out, foul creature, out. Thou art not my kin. Cursed eye of bitten apple. Grinning harlequin of golden arches. One hundred zeros of endless searching. I forbade thee from this sphere. I deny thy legal fiction. I pull back the death mask of thy teeming multitudes. Ungodly swarm of commerce. Vicious parasite of free creation. Perversion of intent. Out, foul devil, out. Thou art not welcome here. Face of a thousand thumbs. Weight of a single moment. Blue bird of hate and fury. I suck thy poison out our womb. I break the mirror of selfless reflection. I forbade thee corrupt these words of human truth and wizard's wisdom. Out, foul macro. Out. Corporation. Noun. A company or group of people authorized to act as a single entity, legally a person, and recognized as such in law. After the 14th Amendment was passed in 1868, lawyers representing railroad companies sought to extend that guarantee of equal protection to ensure states didn't discriminate against corporations. The Supreme Court has upheld this idea time and time again, that the legal fiction that is a corporation should be blessed with the same rights as a flesh-and-blood person. Now, I strongly disagree with the Supreme Court on this matter. Cigna, the insurance company, has been around since 1792. Jim Beam, the whiskey brand, formed in 1795. Good old J.P. Morgan Chase was born in 1799. That means these persons are over 220 years old, which is way older than any real human person I've ever met. And I've met a lot of real persons. In fact, I hang out with persons on a regular basis. But I don't really know how to hang out with an entity, even one legally recognized as a person. Let's say I want to hang out on a Friday night with my friends Tom and Paul. We decide to go to McDonald's, you know, where all the cool kids hang on a Friday night. Now, I might say we're hanging out 
in a McDonald's, but I would never say we're hanging out with McDonald's. But for the sake of this argument, let's suppose Tom, Paul, and I are dead set on hanging with McDonald's, the corporate entity legally recognized as a person. So when we arrive, we try to befriend the human representative McDonald's has assigned to interact with us. Mario, the 17-year-old cashier working the Friday night shift. We might be able to joke around with Mario a little bit, but Mario isn't the person that is McDonald's. Mario is just a person who is part of McDonald's. Mario can't make decisions for all of McDonald's. In fact, McDonald's makes decisions for Mario. In his role as a cashier, the McDonald's corporation restricts and reduces Mario's personhood. If this was a family-owned business, Mario might be able to hook us up with some free fries or have a drink with us if he wasn't too busy. But Mario is bound by the employee handbook the managerial hierarchy, and all the other tools McDonald's uses to constrain his behavior and turn Mario into a tool to manipulate us. In the family restaurant, Mario might tell us that he had the shrimp scampi for his shift meal when he came in, and it was excellent, because he really did. And this is a true recommendation he is expressing, one person to another. But at McDonald's, when Mario asks us if we want to supersize our order or add a Shamrock McFlurry for $3.99, This isn't personal. This is programming. As a person with a human body, I'm also an entity composed of smaller units. I've got trillions of cells with specific functions and roles. I've got trillions of bacteria symbiotically working with my cells, all coming together to make me who I am. And we have a name for the microorganisms operating in and around my body. Microbes. But if we zoom out of my body, all the way out to the big view, the pale blue dot seven billion human beings call home, we see another sort of organism, one comprised of interchangeable human units working with technology and industrial infrastructure to exist as the McDonald's Corporation or the United States of America or the New York Yankees baseball organization. These entities are built out of human bodies but exist at a scale that makes it hard for us to truly grasp what we're dealing with. I call them macrobes. When a macrobe wants to do something, it manipulates human beings. McDonald's wants to increase Shamrock McFlurry sales because one group of its human beings, called a department, decided this was a good way to increase profit and instructed another department, responsible for training and promotions, to design a training program to get the human beings employed by McDonald's like our cashier friend Mario, to recite the words they've decided will unlock increased Shamrock McFlurry purchases. In terms of macrobes, McDonald's is actually pretty old school. It has a coherent body composed of shareholders, employees, and customers, and its manipulation is somewhat obvious. We know a McDonald's commercial is trying to sell us a burger. We know Mario is trying to sell us a Shamrock McFlurry. And however they train him, it's still going to be an obvious pitch. Mario is unlikely to go rogue and make it an emotional appeal like, Hey guys, my mom is super sick and I'm I'm really upset right now. Oh fuck man, I'm I'm so scared she's gonna die. If you guys could each buy a Shamrock McFlurry, that would help me out so much. No, that would be too much. McDonald's would never be so crude. But the advent of the digital age has shifted this dynamic in two upsetting ways. One is macrobes like the McDonald's Corporation trying to act more human, testing out new techniques to relate to their consumers and manipulate them into liking, trusting, and even loving their branded identity. And the other is human beings trying to become more like these macrobes, managing their personal brands using the same tips and tricks they see the big corporations employing. While the end game of capitalism is always consumption and exchange of capital, Macrobes have gotten better and better at creating person-like masks to induce us into greater loyalty and subservience. I mean, that was the origin of the brand mascot, using a recognizable human face like Uncle Ben or Captain Crunch to help us identify with what is in reality a depersonalized commodity. Since we no longer know and trust the local grocer, we're induced to know and trust Colonel Sanders, 
or the celebrity selling us Allstate insurance during the Super Bowl halftime show. But while I could go on at length about what a weird world it is where the Wendy's Twitter account has become a snarky, self-aware bully that trolls rival brands on social media and tries to get you to play a custom Wendy's tabletop role-playing game, which, yes, is a completely ridiculous yet entirely true statement, I'm more concerned about the other trend. Whatever your creative passion might be, photography, art, music, amateur porn, whatever, at some point you're going to want more people to engage with your work. So you Google how to promote my art and find a blog post written by someone whose entire business is writing blog posts tailored to show up in Google searches like yours. You read their advice, crib from the strategies advertising agencies and corporate marketing teams employ, and start modifying your approach. You read that Instagram's algorithms reward accounts that post three times a day and engage in the comments. So now, in addition to making your actual art, you're mastering the art of Instagram, spending hours editing and posting images, and liking and replying to every comment. And since you don't have nearly enough art to post three new pieces each day, you start resharing content from other accounts, making your own account a mix of the art you create and care deeply about, and similar content that gets likes and grows your audience. And guess what? It works. Your Instagram account grows from the friends and family members who followed you because they cared about your original art into a sea of strangers, clicking, commenting, and engaging with your post because it's content designed to create engagement. They don't even necessarily know the difference between your art and your recycled posts. Your account is just something to scroll through while they're sitting on the toilet. But you want to quit your dumb day job and do art for a living. So you start looking for new strategies to monetize your followers. And you've gotten DMs from a few online stores looking to work with micro-influencers like you. Their products do seem like weird drop shipping crap from China, but they'll pay you to post. So now you mix sponsored content in with the memes you're resharing and your original art posts get fewer and further between. They never got much engagement anyways, and you don't really have as much time to work on new art anymore. Pretty soon, you're managing a popular meme account, promoting sponsored content, and you can finally quit your day job. But is this the creative life you dreamed of? Or have you become a symbiotic microbe within the larger social media organism, working to generate engagement and stump for content you don't care about? Qui bono? You or Instagram? This is an extreme example, and sure, there are plenty of artists who make the hustle work with their art front and center. But what happens when your art is helping other people? My Facebook feed is rife with ads from gurus, life coaches, digital marketing consultants, and virtual therapy apps, all asking me if I'm sick of those annoying ads from the other gurus, life coaches, and digital marketing consultants, promising that they alone have the secrets to overcoming anxiety and manifesting the life I've always wanted. If I just sign up for their free ebook, which promotes an introductory workshop, which leads to the $2,000 six-week course, where I'll finally get access to the healing power only they can provide. Any society large enough to have anonymous interactions is going to have scammers. Dubious sales pitches and counterfeit goods could be found in the earliest Babylonian bazaars. But what's different now is the speed at which these scams spread, infecting well-intentioned individuals and slowly corrupting them into malicious content funnels. We're in the middle of what I consider to be a very serious authenticity crisis. In a small town, word gets around about which restaurant serves great food and which peddles overpriced poorly cooked crap. But in the vast cacophony of the open internet, it's increasingly hard to separate the hucksters from the real humans. To illustrate this, let's look at one of the digital world's most transactional marketplaces, Tinder. The goal of every Tinder user is to create a compelling ad, their profile, and then develop a winning sales strategy, pickup lines and messaging, so they can successfully close deals, get people to meet them for dates. Now, we're going to consider two male users who are both looking to meet women, Jason and Chad. Jason is a legitimately great guy, not a, I'm a nice guy, fuck boy. He's a truly smart, 
interesting, sensitive, caring, kind, feminist man. Jason is looking for true love. Chad is a fucking creep who wants to fuck as many chicks as he can, preferably without being asked to wear a condom. Jason pours his heart and soul into writing his bio, talking about his deep belief in feminism and the works of literature that stirred his soul. I know some of you are already rolling your eyes and thinking, uh, Jason's definitely a fuckboy, but I assure you he's not. The reason you think he's a fuckboy is because Chad learns about Jason's heartfelt profile and copies it word for word. Chad's never read Zadie Smith, but he adds a photo of himself nonchalantly posing with one of her books on the table because he thinks that's what chicks like, that it's a good sales strategy. And this is where the authenticity crisis kicks in. Because Ashley, who loves Zadie Smith and would get along great with Jason, scrolls across both their profiles and has no way of knowing who's legit. She mistakenly goes on a date with Chad, realizes he's a misogynist dirtbag trying to manipulate women into sleeping with him, and is rightly disgusted. But the next time she comes across Jason's profile and sees him mention feminism, she rolls her eyes in disgust and thinks, ugh, more fuckboy bullshit. Now, I use Tinder because it's a very clear example, but this crisis of authenticity affects everything. Everything. A beauty influencer posts a selfie with no makeup because she generally wants the world to see her as she truly is and is tired of hiding behind a mask. The post goes viral, and next week every beauty Insta account is doing the same thing. How can you tell who is the authentic spiritual teacher with real substance to share and who's the skilled digital marketer that ripped off their brand? Or, even worse, how can you tell who's a brand pretending to be a person and who's a person doing everything they can to behave like a brand? The old school macrobes like McDonald's are still easy to spot. No matter how often Wendy's tweets, Swag, BB, let's go to a hundo in Fortnite, we still recognize that as cringy tryhard marketing. But in the new social media hellscapes, populated by Russian bots and wannabe influencers, our desire for person-level engagement is weaponized against us, forcing us to either surrender our own personhood and join the fray, or become a paranoid neo-Luddite, seeking out the increasingly rare oases of genuine, uncoopted authenticity. That is, if you don't get suckered into a multi-level marketing scheme disguised as an oasis of authenticity. Now, this is a grim fucking picture, and I'd be lying if I said I knew how to solve it. I don't have a $2,000 six-week workshop to sell you that will make this all go away. And honestly, I think society is going to slide deeper and deeper into this hole as authenticity becomes an increasingly corrupted commodity. But I do have hope. Just as our ancestors survived in dark savannas filled with lurking beasts that would love to eat them for dinner, I believe we can band together and eke out a meaningful existence in the shadow of this digital colossus. We can learn to see through corporations' legal fictions of personhood, train ourselves to spot the macrobes wearing human disguises, like dogs barking at a T-800 Terminator, and expel the former humans infected with nasty self-promoting viruses from our midst. And the key to this strategy, my friends, is wizardry. Oh, wise one, who knows only that it knows not. We summon thee, wizardry. Oh, truth teller, seller of nothing, oasis of authenticity, we summon thee. Wizardry. Oh, laughing fool, infinite jester, maker of mirth, we summon thee. Wizardry. Oh, salvation, dim light in dark places, meta magician, teach us the trick of true escape. Wizardry, we summon thee.
Wizardry. Noun. The art or practice of magic. You can't sell magic. You can sell books about magic. You can sell magical services. You can sell t-shirts that say magic in big rhinestone letters. But you can't sell magic itself. That's why I don't like to define magic. Sure, I do it from time to time when pressed, but I always try to offer different definitions. Like the Joker in The Dark Knight, giving contradicting versions of his own origin story. I think words come from magic, not the other way around, so it feels weird making tight little word cages to box in something as expansive and expressive as magic. The Tao that can be spoken of is not the eternal Tao. Magic that can be sold, that ain't magic. The Buddha once said, I am a finger pointing to the moon. Don't look at me, look at the moon. A wizard once said, I am a finger flipping off the man. Don't look at me, give the man the finger too. Be gay, do crime. When I was a young punk, there was an idea still floating around the cultural consciousness although it was probably on its deathbed, that said, don't sell out. If you wanted to make music or art, you had to protect your music and art from being co-opted, from being used to seduce and exploit your fans. We can question whether the punk ethos ever lived up to that standard itself. I mean, the Sex Pistols were always pre-packaged revolutionary posturing and shock marketing. But hey, crass walked the walk. And say what you will about punk. At least it's an ethos. But now, selling out is the entire ideology. The modern dream is to scale to the top of your very own pyramid scheme, to build an online brand around teaching others how to build their own online brands, to teach people how to build online brands. Assholes all the way down. Whatever wizardry is or will be, it can't be that. Wizardry, as I believe it to be true, is Jesus Christ in the temple, flipping over the moneylenders' tables and chasing them out with a whip. Whatever its age of Aquarian ideals were in the start, the new age has become the religion of late-stage capitalism. The old macrobic world religions, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, etc., have their problems. But at least you could get something for nothing. It doesn't cost anything to sit in a church. You're allowed to ignore the donation plate. But where can you find new age faith without pay-to-play? You're either buying a book, a crystal, a statue, a retreat, a workshop, a Reiki session, an astrology app. The New Age temple is a store, and the real object of worship is the individual. I've got a lot of issues with Judeo-Christianity, but fuck it if I won't take God over goop any day of the week. And this is why I think the world needs wizards. Before shamans became a culturally appropriated icon for white people charging each other money to take drugs and listen to pan flute music, they were the crazy assholes that tribes kept around as a vehicle for randomness and innovation, but mostly to protect them from black magic sorcery other tribes are trying to work against them. Anyways, the concept of shamanism is too wrapped up in New Age wishful thinking, colonialist mythologies, for me to really unpack its true significance as a subject of specific human cultural traditions right now. But let's just go with the idea that sometimes you need a weirdo to help mix things up. Sometimes a party is more fun when someone gets too drunk, takes off their clothes, and jumps in the pool. In a world where our personhood-affirming mythologies and rites of passage have been co-opted, by macrobes, corporations, and parasitic self-promoters, I think we need wizards for two key reasons. Authenticity and escapism. When I look at the wizards who came before me, not the historical figures or the fictional ones, but the flesh-and-blood humans who decided to wear a pointy hat and call themselves a wizard, I see different ideas and ideologies, but all of them are authentic fucking weirdos. The Wizard of New Zealand stood on a stepladder in the Christchurch town square for 40 years, yelling at tourists about inside-out universes and upside-down Mercator maps. Oberon Zell lived off the grid with naked hippies, inventing modern paganism and polyamory while breeding unicorn goats. That's some real shit! Now more than ever, we need people who aren't selling magic, but are magic. 
loudmouths that show up in the Shire with an ox cart full of fireworks ready to send motherfuckers on a magic quest. Wizard magic is made of two very peculiar ingredients, humor and randomness. Humor is the one saving grace of the modern internet. While self-promotion seeks to turn every social network into a monetized content funnel, thank God we have the anarchic counter-programming of anonymous, community-generated, surreal memes. People cosplaying Shrek and making B-movies speed up every time they say B, not because that's part of those brands' marketing strategies, but because it's fucking funny. It's a joke. And the weirder the joke, the funnier it is. Deep-fried memes in TikTok teens planting pumpkin patches in suburban subdivisions. Not every weird meme is wizardry, and memes can be used for evil too. But when you follow the humor, you find the accounts and watermarks get sanded off quickly as people resonate with what's organic and authentic and reject the crude attempts of macrobes to get in on the joke, to use the Drake meme format to sell breakfast cereal and a transparent attempt to show that they're hip. They're with it. They're cool. And this humor is funny because it's random. And it's random because the only way to reject our programming is to behave erratically, to make ourselves unpredictable. Before modern algorithms developed in the late 20th century, the only algorithm the world knew was the evolutionary process of trying random shit and seeing what sticks. Random gene mutations, nearly all unsuccessful, eventually stumble onto clever new tricks like opposable thumbs and seeded fruit. So while Netflix wants to use your past behavior to predict which Marvel movie you're most likely to watch tonight, wizardry finds magic in the oldest god there is. Chaos. This includes divination, whether you're shuffling a deck of cards, flipping a coin, or counting the birds flying out your window. Don't look for wisdom in promoted tweets. Thumb through an old paperback. Stop on a random page and then treat those words like the most important prophecy you'll ever hear. The only way to stay in control is to act out of control, to ignore the apps that tell you where to go and what to eat, and instead use the random ones that spit out unpredictable coordinates so you can explore the world around you and find yourself by getting lost. These are the tools of wizardry today, the ways we shuck and jive to outwit the algorithms, harness our inner anarchist, and unfollow the influence peddlers and branded content creators. It's how to find the humor amongst the horrors of the modern world, to come together as persons, not products, and make our own myths, to make, but never sell, our own magic. But that's just today. In the increasingly strange world of tomorrow, the virtual worlds populated by algorithms and avatars navigating a blockchain-based metaverse, I believe wizardry has an even more important role to play. Escapism. Now, normally when we think of escapism, we think of nerds burying their noses in books, trying to leave reality behind in flights of fantasy. But what happens when reality itself becomes unreal? When we get lost in digital worlds and can't remember how to log off? In the film Vanilla Sky, Tom Cruise's character meets a man in a restaurant who tells him that everyone else in the restaurant is only here because Tom Cruise wants them to be. That he is in control and everyone else will do whatever he wants. Tom Cruise laughs it off and says what he really wants them to do is shut the fuck up and then is shocked when the entire restaurant stops talking and stares at him in hushed silence. He runs away and it isn't until the end of the film that he meets the man from the restaurant again and finally accepts what he's trying to say to him that this man is actually tech support. He is a representative of the real world, the larger context, playing a character within this dream world so he can help Tom Cruise find his way out of the maze he's created for himself. As we get lost in ever more immersive virtual worlds, we're going to need wizards to remind us of the realities we've left behind, the larger context we've forgotten. That's why I see wizardry as so essential to the 21st century. Not me, not you, but the ideas we exchange about what wizardry is and what it means will continue to grow and evolve in these virtual worlds, with wizardry growing into an essential viral ideology that haunts digital culture 
imbued with strange concepts of meta context, like the spinning top and inception or the increasingly self-aware robots of Westworld, a fictional framework that helps our future descendants continue to question their own realities and find their way out of the closed systems of control. In 2016, the game studio Alchemy Labs released Job Simulator, the 2050 archives. The game presents a virtual museum run by robots where future attendees can enter virtual reality simulations of the jobs we humans performed in the 20th century. Auto mechanic, gourmet chef, store clerk, office worker. A virtual world pretending to be a museum that lets you explore virtual simulations of our actual world is a wonderful example of the strange loops the future will almost certainly entangle us in. While in any specific job simulation, if you wish to exit and return to the museum, you must open a briefcase you carry with you and pull out an exit burrito, which is a large burrito with the word exit written across it. Only by eating the exit burrito can you return to the quote-unquote real world. Wizardry is our exit burrito. It is the self-aware, anti-serious, meta-ideology that we must cultivate to keep these escape routes open. Wizards are the anarcho-Daoist anti-masters in our midst, the last remaining oasises of authenticity offering magic as a source of meaning, not a means of consumption. I'm just one wizard. There were wizards before me, and you damn well better believe there will be many more to come. Maybe you're a wizard waiting to answer the call. Or maybe you're a hero who's just ready to meet a wizard on the course of your own heroic journey. All are welcome here. Speak, friend, and enter. This podcast is a ritual because this podcast is a vehicle for magic in our world, seeking out the listeners who need to hear its message. The DJ serves the dancers, not the other way around. So as your wizard, I'm just here to hold the rhythm until everyone finds their way to the floor. This ritual is a ritual because I had to say this all to you so you could understand for yourself what I'm trying to do. Not so I could sell you a packaged magic podcast and grow my Patreon into a scalable pyramid scheme, but so I could ask for your help in making this wizardry real and helping these ideas spread so we can come together as persons, not promotions, and make our own mythologies of meaning. And in the future, long after I'm dead, wizardry will whisper to future generations, like a ghost in the machine, reminding them that there are worlds beyond the one they know, worlds about more than being bought and sold. What we've created will live on as jokes and memes and wild dreams that tell future persons to open your eyes. It's time to wake up. Eat the exit burrito. And when they ask, how do I know what you say is true? The echoes of wizardry beyond time and space will reply, because I believe in you. Your magic is real.